Well, happy Wednesday. Hope you all are doing well. Uh, why don't I open for us in a word of prayer before we begin. Father, thank you for this time. I thank you for all these lovely people that have come tonight to share in the glory that your word gives to us. I pray that these words from your word would not fall on deaf ears, but that we would come out of here changed uh, and eager to love our Lord Jesus Christ even more. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the stories that my dad used to read to me and my siblings when we were growing up was the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the main conflict happens between the lion, Aslan, and the witch, who is called the White Witch. So at one point in the story, Aslan is killed by the White Witch on something called the Stone Table. The next day, two of his followers, Lucy and Susan Pevensey, they go to the Stone Table where he died. But when they arrive, they find that he has actually risen again. And their hope of defeating the White Witch in their conflict is restored. And after he comes back to life, he goes to the White Witch's castle while she is at war with his army. And inside are many of his followers that the White Witch has turned into stone with her evil magic. So Aslan walks up to each of these followers and he breathes on them. And as he does so, each of them is awakened as their icy stone is turned back into flesh and they return to the living. So in this section of that story, Aslan dies, he rises again, and he gives life back to his people. So tonight, we are going to see how the Bible reveals Jesus as the one who has power over death and who also has the authority to give life to whoever believes in him. If you look at your sermon outline with me, uh, you will find the theme statement, which reads, The church believes in Jesus Christ, whose resurrection, ascension, and return guarantee life for the salvation of his people. So the first way we're going to see Jesus as this Lord of life is through his own resurrection from the dead. So if you guys would, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, and 28 is the last chapter of Matthew. This passage is taking place on the third day after Jesus died. So Jesus died on a Friday. It is now Sunday morning. Beginning in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. 
So we learn from verse 1 that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are going to see the tomb. And this is a pretty normal thing. They probably were bringing spices or perhaps going to mourn the death of their beloved friend Jesus. But right at verse 2, something very uh, extraordinary happens. This is where the story gets interesting. So they arrive at the tomb only to find that it is empty. And the earth shakes because an angel has rolled away the stone. Verse 4 even says that the guards that saw him became like dead men. That probably means that they fainted. Uh, and that's not surprising considering what they just witnessed. It says the angel's countenance was like lightning and his robes were as white as snow. So he's glowing and there's men on the ground and the stone has been moved and there's nobody in the grave. So what is going on here? Well, one thing we know is that Jesus was really dead. We know that he's been in the grave for multiple days. Um, we also know that multitudes watched him die on the cross. And also multitudes watched him be taken to a tomb. So he's definitely certifiably dead. But on the third day, the one who claimed to be the son of God was not in the tomb where he was laid. The earth shook an angel rolled the stone from the tomb and sat on it like he just won king of the hill. These events are showing the power of God and Christ's victory over death. And Jesus rising again was certainly glorious, but it was also not just him showing off. There was something else going on with it. Jesus rising again actually proves to us that his sacrifice was satisfactory before God and that sin was truly paid for. In his death, Jesus became the sufficient sacrifice for God so that his wrath on sin was satisfied. And like we have talked about over these sermons and the Apostles' Creed, Christ died that death to save, to save sinners from slavery. Um, but it means nothing if he is held captive by death. If Jesus wasn't victorious over death, then at best he was a good man who was wrongly crucified. But he was victorious over death as we read in Matthew 28. And he appears to the woman, saying, Greetings! Another gospel writer says, Rejoice! And so we actually have eyewitness accounts of his resurrection. And what is their response to it? We see in verse 9 uh, that they fall at his feet and they worship him. And this is the right response to Jesus' work, worship. It seems like a good time to ask you what your response might be to Jesus' resurrection. Are you feeling jazzed about it, or is it just kind of feeling like a cool story to you? If you really do believe this, then how can you let something this extraordinary become ho-hum? We can learn from these women in Matthew 28 here, and we can fall at the feet of Jesus and worship our King. That is a response of faith. Well, this resurrection also contains implications for God's people. Jesus says to Martha in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So his resurrection was actually just the beginning. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. I will start reading in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. 
And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So, in this passage, Paul is confirming for us that Christ's resurrection is actually just the first of many. The Feast of the First Fruits, which was um, instituted for the Israelites in the wilderness, it's found in Leviticus 23. It was meant as a way to give thanks to God for the produce uh, that he had provided. So, the first of the produce of the harvest was brought to the Lord as a sign of trust that it was just the beginning of much more to come. And likewise, Jesus is the first fruits of the church. He was the initial resurrection that pointed to and is still pointing to the gleaning of a glorious spiritual harvest. So all those who have died will be raised to eternal life at the end of the age. Additionally, Paul is making a logical argument for the resurrection from the dead. See, if Jesus did not rise again, then what are we really believing in? Our hope in the life to come hinges on Jesus' resurrection from the dead because it is the very thing that assures us of our own resurrection. Paul is also helpful in Romans 6 when he writes this, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Jesus' resurrection is actually giving us more insight into the meaning of his death. If he had remained in the grave, then what assurance do we even have of salvation? We've talked the last few weeks about how Jesus' death was necessary to make atonement for sin, but his resurrection was equally necessary because it is also our resurrection. He was raised bodily, and so will all of his people be raised bodily when he returns. And not only are Christians assured of a final resurrection to come, resurrection actually occurs in the heart of a person as soon as he or she is saved. So in a way, this is another first fruits. In Ezekiel 36, God promises his people that he will remove their heart of stone and he will give them a heart of flesh. I don't know how much time you guys have spent around rocks, but rocks are very dead. Rocks do not jump for joy when they hear good news. Rocks don't have opinions. They're rocks. But flesh, on the other hand, is only attached to living things. The Bible is clear that someone outside of Christ is spiritually dead, like a rock. But those who believe in Jesus have been made spiritually alive. And that spiritual resurrection points to the physical resurrection that Paul is promising us here in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, so we have looked at Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We've looked at how it shows that he has power over death and that he is the giver of life for his people. But God's redemptive plan is not done after Christ's resurrection. 
Jesus went to heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We read that in the Creed. So turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to stay in this pocket of the New Testament. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 6. Acts 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we read that he has... Oh, sorry, I jumped ahead. <laughs> so, yeah, the disciples are asking him the question, is he going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he doesn't give them a very satisfying answer uh, when he tells them that it is not for them to know uh, the times or seasons that the Father has fixed. Um, but essentially what he's telling them is that they're asking the wrong question. Um, Jesus means for them to be witnesses of the resurrection that just took place until he returns, and that is their mission. So, I just told you that Jesus is going to return, but that means he has to come from somewhere. So where is he now? Well, if we go to Philippians chapter 2, we will get an answer. I'm going to start reading in verse 9. Philippians 2 in verse 9. Paul says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So just after these couple verses, we have read that uh, Jesus has the name above every name, and that every knee will bow at that name. But Paul starts this section here with a therefore. So it is important for us to figure out what is the therefore, therefore. And we see that in the verses leading up to verses 9 through 11, that Jesus has become like us on perfect obedience to the Father to die the death that we deserved. And his obedience actually was earning righteousness for us. And so we see that God has rewarded him for his impeccable obedience. That's why it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. His ascension to the right hand of God the Father was essentially a declaration of his kingship and his lordship over all things. So Jesus is right now reigning over all things as he is exalted in God, with God in heaven. The writer in, of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, also makes a case for Jesus being above all things, even the angels. He says in this chapter that God never said to the angels, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And this is referring to the fact that Jesus is indeed enthroned on his right hand. Uh, later in that chapter, it says that God says to the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then finally, at the end of chapter 1 in Hebrews, we see that God says to Jesus, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So 
All of this is saying that Christ ascended to reign on the right hand of God the Father as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. It is also important to note that Jesus' enthronement is consistent with his sonship to God the Father. And we see this right also in the Apostles' Creed. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So it is God the Father that has given Jesus this office as king. And it is the Father who says to him, I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And it is the Father who gives the Son authority to rule over all things as he is placed in glory. So, finally, Jesus' office as the Lord of life is seen in his promised return. Through the visions of prophets like Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John, and others, we get a glimpse into what this return will be like. You can turn to Revelation 19 with me if you would like. I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I wish we had time to detail each and every implication that is involved in this passage, um, but I do want you to just come away from this um, with the idea that Jesus is going to come again, and he's going to come again in glory and in power. He will have authority over life itself, and it says that he will rule with a rod of iron. Earlier in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 5, we see another clear example like this. In this narrative, John begins to weep because nobody is found to open the scroll that has the seven seals that's in God's right hand. Um, what's pretty consistent in the Bible is that God enacts his power and his decrees through his word. Um, he created the earth with his word, with his voice. Jesus is called the word of God. Jesus healed people with his voice. So we can kind of see the scroll here as simply God's decrees. And it's sealed up. But the angel says to John in this passage, Weep no more. Behold, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So Jesus is the only one with the authority to take the scroll from God's right hand, which is telling us that it is Jesus who puts into effect God's plan and God's purposes. And this is also consistent with what we just read in Revelation 19. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. In Revelation, a wine glass is sometimes used as the vessel for God's wrath. And the cup of God's wrath is the wine, and it is poured out on God's enemies. 
So Jesus, being the one treading the wine press, is also showing us that he's the one that is putting into effect God's purposes. So these descriptions of Jesus help to give us a picture of what Jesus will do when he returns. And ultimately, his mission will be to judge the quick and the dead. So turn over to Revelation 20. Shouldn't be too hard to find. And uh, I'll start reading in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was in the, written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the death in Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So in this chapter here, we're getting a description of Jesus beginning his final work. His final work will consist of three things. First, the devil will be defeated, which will be glorious. The great deceiver of old will be cast into the lake of fire and he will deceive the nations no more. And at last, our great enemy will be defeated. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, a little later in the chapter, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And this is the day that we wait for with great anticipation. The day that the accuser of the brothers is defeated and his power is vanquished. And secondly, from his throne as king, Jesus will judge the living and the dead. All people, whether dead or alive, will be judged according to their works. When I preached last, I made the claim that sin is essentially any disobedience to God's command, and we are all guilty of it. So anyone who has not believed in Jesus unto salvation will receive the just penalty for a life that is riddled with sin. Their eternal existence will be spent away from God and away from his goodness, and God will be found entirely just in doing this. For he offered his son as the cure for sin and as the cure for death. So on that day, there will be no more time for excuses. Everyone will have either believed in Jesus or they will have not believed in Jesus. So that means that now is the time to get right with God if you haven't already. When that final day comes, the time will be up, and nobody knows when that day is coming. It could very well be tomorrow. We don't know. So that means that now is the time to do business with God. Right now, he is offering his son Jesus to you. And he has accomplished his work of coming to earth as a man, dying the sinner's death for you, and rising again on the third day so that that last day no longer needs to be a fearful thing for you. 
You can give your life to Jesus, and he will make you spiritually alive right now, and you'll have the promise of eternal glory with him. And that can be yours today if you are willing to admit that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior and that you choose to accept Jesus as your personal Savior. It's that simple. He is the ultimate life giver and the only one who has authority to give you life. Well, lastly, Jesus' mission in his return will be to consummate fellowship with his people. Believers already have uh, fellowship with him now, spiritually, but on that day, it will be a physical reunion, and it will be unmarred by sin. Look down to chapter 21 in Revelation, and follow along as I read. I'm going to start in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven, from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So Jesus calls to himself a people. And what a glorious truth it is that the dwelling place of God is with man. As we just read in chapter 20, the devil and sin and death will be crushed. And there will no longer be any pain. And Jesus will be our king forever and ever. And he will give us everything we need. And with joy, we shall draw water from the wells of salvation. So where do we go from here? I have thought of three ways that I believe that this conversation should apply to our lives. The first, I believe it is worthwhile for us to consider what our response should be to all of this. And remember how the woman responded when they saw Jesus again after his resurrection. They fell at his feet and worshiped. So too, we must worship the king who rose again from the dead to give us his resurrection. Like Caleb so helpfully explained to us on Sunday, Worship is a delighted devotion to a glorious object. And I think that that has worked out in two ways. Praising him now for our spiritual resurrection and rightly longing for a physical resurrection to come. Now is the time to praise Jesus for what he has done for us. Right now he is already reigning over all things and he already has the name above all names. And he has already given you life. So praise him as the king who did that. And if you are in faith, you also have an eternity with Jesus to look forward to. This life can be very tough at times. There's no getting around that. But it is so short compared to eternity. R.C. Sproul is quoted saying, It's the resurrection of Christ that means that no amount of suffering, no amount of grief, no amount of sorrow, no amount of loneliness, no amount of apparent hopelessness can ever be ultimate because Christ is risen. This reality can give us hope and joy until Jesus returns. We have something glorious to look forward to. He has won, and he guarantees life for you. Remember what we said about Christ's resurrection. It is actually just the first fruits of our resurrection. So happy Easter, everyone. You get to partake in Jesus' resurrection. And secondly, like we talked about, God has changed 
the heart of every believer to make them alive together with Christ. So that means a recognition of Christ's power in your life to fight sin. Your new life means that in Christ you are now dead to your sin, and you must wage war on it. Now, having a new heart does not suddenly make fighting sin a walk in the park, but no one ever said the Christian life was going to be easy. I'm saying that it is worth it. Jesus is worth putting your death, putting to death your sin by any means possible. That might mean going without a smartphone if you are finding yourself addicted to pornography or to social media or to entertainment. It might even mean not watching certain movies altogether, or maybe it means choosing to abstain from alcohol. It might even mean choosing not to spend time with certain people because they're only going to drag you away from your commitment to Christ. None of these things are easy, I know that, but the risen Christ is with you by the Holy Spirit every step of the way, and he's giving you power to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. And that brings me to the third way that I think this can be lived out. Uh, We also must consider the weight of what it means that Jesus is coming back in judgment. There are people who still do not know that they will have to give an account for their works. And there also are many people who have heard this but don't believe it. And for those of you that have believed, think about the people in your life that God gave you that loved you enough to tell you about your sin, that loved you enough to tell you about hell and about Jesus. And now think about the people in your life that God has given you opportunity to share with. Be bold with them. This is perhaps an extreme scenario, but I would much rather lose a friend because I shared some difficult truths than have a dear friend look at me on that day and think that I could have told them about Jesus, but I kept my mouth shut. And again, I know this is not always as easy as it sounds, and it can be very scary to stick our neck out. But let me remind you again that you have the spirit of the living God working inside you right now, and you can trust that he will give you help in times of need. Just as Jesus had a mission while he was on earth, we too have a mission while we're on earth until he comes back. So, revel in the Lord of life who invited you into his resurrection, and he promises to come back in glory to bring you home with him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your son. Thank you for sending him to die for us. Thank you for... Uh, giving him new life on that third day. Thank you that you have power over death itself. And thank you that you have loved us deeply to give us new life, to share in Christ's resurrection. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.